There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome back to the show. No, we're talking about high society today. Oh, right, I got the wrong. have to. Hang on, let me change real quick. Hello, everybody. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that it? Ah, oh, there he is. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> Kibbles and blood pudding. Oh, yeah. kibbles and blood pudding, eh? I don't know. I, I, I gotta say, I've never had authentic British food, really, to be honest. I mean, we have pub mm-hmm. food here. Right. But, yeah, I've never been to England. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was an argument the other day about scones and biscuits and cookies and stuff on Twitter. Oh, okay. And like a bunch of British people were like looking at Southern American biscuits and saying those look disgusting. Oh, what? And of course we're like, You're, that's outrageous. You're insane. It's just <laughs> fat and salt and mm-hmm. flaky Delicious. pastry. It, it's so good in the worst way. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone was like, well, it doesn't, it'll never beat a blood pudding and clotted cream or something like that, whatever they said. And I was just like, like clotted cream is the most 
unappetizing two words you could put together. It's true. Ever. You may as well say curdled cream. Right. It's just, yeah, it's just that mixture of letters. It's whipped cream, isn't it? I don't even know what it is. I just, the name has turned me off so much (laughs) that I can't, I can't get involved. Might be delicious. I'm not here to, to smack talk. It's just words have a lot of power, you know? Right. Very true. I'm stalling while Diana looks it up. I don't, I'll, I'll riff a few more minutes about and the other thing about clotted cream. <laughs> I don't know. Do you get it? Yeah, I don't think I. It's it does sound a lot like whipped cream, and it's I think it's meant to be sweet, but um, but it's made with unpasteurized milk, so it's actually oh. illegal in the U.S. Oh, you can't get you can't get uh, clotted cream. In well, the US. now I'm intrigued. Now I want it. <laughs> now, Give we'll me. have to go to London and have us some clotted cream and okay. a Kinder Egg. Well, I guess I will go to London then. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> any, any of our listeners out there in, in foggy London town. I know. Uh, hit us up if you got a spare room. We'll crash wanna, on your couch. Yeah, <laughs> a spare room and a private jet. <laughs> just let us set. know. We'll hop right over the pond. Yes. We don't like to fly scheduled. <laughs> Well, hey, everybody, we're glad to have you back. Of course, we're spending a lot of time in England today. Yeah, you might have guessed. (laughs) Yeah, uh, very exciting for us, for everyone. Hopefully our UK listeners are super into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully all our former colonies out there in the world are okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, how's everybody doing? We saw Encanto. We did watch Encanto. It's been in my head for days. We don't talk about Bruno. I had it stuck in my head all day yesterday. Uh I finally was singing something else. I had a different earworm going on completely. It was like Tame Impala. It was like totally different. Sure. And then you came in singing We Don't Talk About Bruno. Right. And it ruined the rest of my night. Of course. Because <laughs> you brought it right back around. Of course. Look, I, there's worse songs to have stuck in your oh, head. Oh, no, it's It's true. a banger. That's, That's why true. it's in my I head. I was definitely like dancing I around. just did the thing where I was like, it's in my head, so let me listen to it 12 times in a row, and then That'll it'll go away. It. That's never the answer. Never works. I always think it'll work, and it never, it just makes it worse. <sighs> well, it really made me want to find a Colombian love story that wasn't about a drug cartel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. if anyone has one, yeah. please Keep your eyes peeled. Let us out. know. But today we're not in Colombia, as you said. Yeah. We are in foggy London town. <laughs> oh. <laughs> where, sorry, where's that again? Uh, you know, foggy London town. <laughs> foggy London? No, we're in London is where we're at. Ah, yes. <laughs> because today we are talking about Oscar Wilde. Oh, the one and only. The one and only. Famous author, mm-hmm. playwright. Wit. Witty, wit, wittier, wit, witwright. Witwright? Yeah. Witwright. Who creates wit. <laughs> I'm a wit right. That's very hard to say. <laughs> but as you said, a very famous wit, very famous author, very pl- famous playwright, and also famously gay. Mm-hmm. His passionate and tumultuous relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas led to a very public trial, a brutal sentence, and eventually his death. All because of Alfred's dad, the Marquis of Queensbury. So let's hear all about the world of the gay Victorian underground, the trial of Oscar Wilde, and all the bad things that can happen when you have a crap boyfriend. Oh, that sounds like a lot. Let's do it. Yeah. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll Put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. 
Oscar Wilde was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1854, and he was a brilliant scholar all throughout his school years. He ended up getting a half scholarship to Magdalen College at Oxford by easily winning an essay contest. <laughs> he studied Greek literature, excelled academically, wrote some okay poems and essays, but he hadn't quite found his signature style and voice yet. Right, right, sure. However, he was becoming more and more well-known in London society for his style, wit, and charm, because he was really big in the aesthetic movement, which was all about making art simply to make art, instead of making art to serve some kind of religious or moral or educational purpose, you know? Okay, um, okay. So it's, it's been called art for art's sake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I can paint a cat, mm -hmm. so I'm going to paint a really good cat. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, it's not a lesson. The cat isn't society. Right. The cat <laughs> isn't the king of England. The cat's not it's looking at a, a queen. It's just a damn good cat. Don't you want to look yeah. at this cat painting? It's a beautiful cat. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, all right. exactly. Sure. And it led to a prolific amount of art from, like, all artistic mediums, fashion, literature, you know, painting, music, everything. Right. Because it opened the world up so much. If you don't have oh, a yeah. purpose to make something, just to make it, right. you're going to make more of it. Because now you've got <laughs> people. Because you got no purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and because of that, it has been criticized that a lot of the art made from this aesthetic movement, you know, is kind of self-indulgent and empty. Right. But, so it's like George W. painting cats. Yeah, it's like George W. painting cats. Right. He's right. like, you know what? I did one thing. Now I'm doing another thing. <laughs> it means nothing <laughs> to anyone. The thing I did before doesn't matter. Look at the look at the cats. <laughs> look at the cats. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I think it's funny that they would criticize it as being self-indulgent and empty when the Estes would be like, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the point. Right, right. <laughs> and the criticism <laughs> is, is the point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it'd be like some guy walks into a museum. It's like, all right, well, I see all this aesthetic art. Doesn't seem to have a lot of meaning or purpose to it. Yes, exactly, sir. See, he gets it. What, what I say? <laughs> but Oscar Wilde was super into it. He was all about the aesthetic movement, and he lived that shit. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He wore his hair long and flowing. He decorated his rooms with peacock feathers and lilies and sunflowers and blue china and other objets d'art. Oh. He entertained lavishly, even though he wasn't like a rich guy, but he would just be like, whatever, money's for spending. <laughs> he even gave the movement its slogan when he told a friend, quote, I find it harder and harder every day to live up to my blue china. <laughs> and that quickly became a famous line. Esthetes loved it. They totally adapted it as a tagline. But it was also used against them by critics who thought aestheticism was stupid and pointless. And they were like, see, they're trying to live up to dishes. Like, what the fuck is going on over here? And Oscar Wilde was also openly scornful of, quote unquote, manly sports. Oh. But he did occasionally box... And once in college, he was physically attacked by four other students, and he dealt with them single-handedly. So you might look at Oscar Wilde and be like, that dandy, I could knock him down with one punch. But nope, he accounted for himself very well. He seems like a big guy in his pictures. It, he does seem like I, a big guy. He's, he was actually 6'3". Wow, 6'3". So, uh, yeah, no yeah, so, yeah, yeah. He, he looks like kind of a strapping lad. Yeah. Oh, look at that artist. Let's go beat him up, fellas. And he stands up. <laughs> oh. oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, look, oh, look, what a lovely piece of blue china you got there. <laughs> so Oscar Wilde, already something of a celebrity in certain circles. Mm -hmm. But when he graduated, he was kind of like, okay, you know, now what? Right. 
as many of us do once we graduate. So he went back to Ireland for a little while, only to find that his first love, Florence Balcombe, had married a guy named Bram Stoker. He's like, that bloody bloodsucker. That hack. He'll never write a single book anyone remembers. Oh, wow. Oh, a collection of letters and journal entries. How exciting. Y'all, I did not like Dracula. It was a boring book. It it just didn't do it for me. No. It's a good movie, though. Dear Mina, blah, 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 blah. Love Lucy. Oh, it was cloudy today. What do I do? Yes, very creepy aesthetically. Well, there you go. Aesthetically, yeah. Yeah. So he's a little bummed about her marrying this this other author. Mm -hmm. But he gave her his best wishes for happy marriage, and he decided to go live in England full time. He set himself up in London and started looking around for work, but there wasn't really a lot. I I guess not too many industries were looking for a Greek scholar, you know. (laughs) There's no sign at McDonald's like, now hiring Greek scholars up to $12 an hour. (laughs) So he started writing poems and stories for magazines, and eventually he published a book of his own poems, which sold out its 750 copies. But critically, it was totally panned. Punch magazine said, quote, the poet is wild. But his poetry is tame. Oh, oh. Oh, 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 oh. How droll. Uh, Ha-ha's a, mine. <laughs> that's a good burn, though, I have to say. It's pretty good. <laughs> that's a pretty good burn. Well, when your name's Wilde, you're just inviting. I just feel like Oscar Wilde like is that. the type to have read that and been like, oh, I should have thought of that. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Fortunately, Gilbert and Sullivan were about to premiere their satirical musical about aestheticism called Patience. So the producer of this show was like, hey, Oscar Wilde, why don't you go to a lecture tour on the aesthetic movement in the United States and get all those Yanks hungry for this musical? And he went over there and did that for nearly a year. And he was well received, although he was also subject to a lot of anti-Irish caricaturization in the press. Yes, unfortunately, Irish people, not... Not well loved in America at this time, right? And so, yeah, some of the some of the stuff is so gross too. They called him a blackface performer, what? and they portrayed him as a monkey, like that's an Irish like, monkey. That that's now you're being racist to someone who's not even in the conversation, right? Why what, are we dragging black what's people with the into this? Yeah, nobody asked. They're all like, "What? <laughs> For once, we weren't talking about us. Please leave me alone." Jeez, oh, a mess. In 1881, before he left for this Gilbert and Sullivan tour, he had met a woman named Constance Lloyd. And when he was back in England in 1884, he proposed to her and they got married. And they had two boys together, Cyril in 1885 and Vivian in 1886. They lived mostly on Constance's yearly allowance of 250 pounds. Let's see how much that is. Yeah, if Kim today, pulled the machine. 250 pounds in 1885. That's about 33,100 pounds today or $44,816. So that's that's kind of a normal and an average yeah. yearly income, I guess. But Oscar also continued to tour and lecture about aestheticism, interior design, and art. And in 1886, during one of these lecture tours, he met Robert Ross. Now, Robbie Ross was a precocious 17-year-old. He had already read Oscar's poems, and he was determined to meet Oscar Wilde. According to Richard Ellman, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his Oscar Wilde biography from 1987, it's basically considered the definitive work on Oscar Wilde's life, Mm. Robbie Ross was intent on seducing Oscar Wilde. So even though he was so much younger and a teenager, um, he was kind of like, ooh, this guy's funny. 
we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. are doing it. Right. And apparently, he initiated him into the wonderful world of gay sex. Oh. Robbie's a pretty cool historical figure here, um, sort of in the background of Oscar Wilde's life, but totally worth looking into because he was super open about his sexuality in a time when it was totally illegal to be to engage in homosexual activities. He made no secret of it. He was really open about it in college, so he was mercilessly bullied at Cambridge. Um, He eventually came out to his parents and was honest with them about his lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, But fortunately for him, he was kind of rich enough to, like, live off his inheritance. He didn't really have to conform in order to survive. He could just kind of do whatever he wanted. Um, So he lived out loud. You know, he's like, I got enough money. I'll do what I want. You're telling me there was privilege for this wealthy kid? <laughs> Hard You're to telling grasp, me the, I know. The, the rich kid with an inheritance didn't have to follow the same rules as everyone else? Take your mind back in time and try to understand I guess I can see <laughs> how it, it used it to be. doesn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he would be a lifelong friend of Oscar Wilde's. Yeah. So Oscar's private life is getting more interesting here, but his day job is not. Mm-mm. He edited a women's magazine for two years. Boring. <laughs> no. He edited a women's magazine for two years, but he, he did hate the daily office and the, and the commute and all the grind and all that. Once he left the magazine, he published more long prose and essays about aestheticism, and he started to find his voice. He published The Picture of Dorian Gray in 1890. First, it was a short story in a magazine. And it was immediately attacked by critics as having homosexual undertones. Mm. So he struck back in a letter basically saying that if you look for gold, you find gold. (laughs) And if you look for shite, you find shite. Lucky, is that you? (laughs) I don't know if you had an Irish or a British accent. I do know that that wasn't an Irish accent, whatever I just did. (laughs) (laughs) It was neither. Which I do kind of love that because he was sort of trying to turn it on the critics and yeah. be like, oh, if you find something homosexual in that, that's your own yeah. weird brain. That's you, yeah. you know, like you're you're finding that just to try to, you know, mess with them a little bit. Yeah. So I think that yeah. was kind of smart. But regardless, he did still massively rework the story and he added six chapters and he cut a lot of what would have might have been considered homoeroticism. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, even the esthetes got to eat. Right? <laughs> right. He's like, <laughs> he my still needed to sell copies. not paying my power bill. <laughs> But in the preface, he included epigrams like, quote, There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. He also said this, which I think sums up aestheticism really well. Quote, All art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. It is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. Diversity of opinion about a work of art shows that the work is new, complex, and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. That's so interesting. I really like this outlook on art yeah i, I think yeah I, I think i i think i might be an esthete <laughs> who knew right um but i think that's so cool to say you know it's the spectator and not life that art mirrors because yes. he was kind of saying that to the critic like right. if you're looking for something in something you'll find it yeah but it's mostly it's more about you yeah. and what you're looking for than what the artist put out right 
Because when you analyze art, you're using your own experiences to do it. Right. Your own knowledge, the things you've picked up along the way. So mm-hmm. whatever you're seeing is what you're seeing. And that right. says more about you mm-hmm. than the work. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And I love, too, that he's like, you can make a useful thing, but you can't admire it. And if you make something <laughs> that's not useful, it must be just because you love it so much. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. just think it's so beautiful. Which the second half of that I agree with. The first one I don't, I don't as think much. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of one of the thing about the aesthetic movement and, and a lot of art movements right. that end up being so definitive. It, 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 it really just kind of shows that line where what do you think art is? Because there's a lot of people that think there's a lot of art in math and science. Mm-hmm. And there's an That's art true. to that. And you're creating, you know, necessary things yeah. with a creative mind. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It, it's just it's that about what's what's art. Yeah. Who knows? It's everything. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the eye of the beholder. Right. But I, I will say what I like about this, too, is that the time period, of course, you know, they're coming out of a time period when everything was made very much right. for reli- like, oh, this is to glory- glorify God or this yeah. is, you know, to show you something educational or sure. women do watercolors because what else are they doing? Like, you know, like <laughs> they, there's no, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's, it's pretty cool that they were all like, you know, actually, I don't I don't think you should have to have a reason. I think if a reason enough to want to do it. And yeah. that, as we said, that did open up to a lot of a lot more art. And maybe some of it was not anything you'd care about. Right. But at least it got more people interested in art sure. and interested in creating and the process of creating. And anyway, I think that's cool. Definitely. In 1891, Oscar was introduced to Lord Alfred Douglas. Alfred was handsome and young, but he was also selfish, spoiled, insolent and reckless Mm. and through him oscar was introduced to the underground gay scene in victorian england so let's have a quick fling with history kissy kissy so yeah you know ridiculous romance listeners know that being gay in any time period is nothing new right so we don't have to be like oh there are definitely gay people throughout time you know that (laughs) and in england if you were gay in the 18th and 19th centuries you would go out looking for something called a Molly House. Oh, which I've, was I know, right? But I've heard of Molly houses today, and they're very different. Very different. <laughs> but yeah, Molly was kind of a, a term for a gay person. Okay. And it could be used either as a slur or they would also adopt it themselves. Right, so, sure, sure. Um, and so anyway, these places were called Molly Houses. And they were places for gay men to meet up and drink and party and flirt and have sex in relative safety and privacy. And they were sometimes coffee shops or pubs, and sometimes they were private residences. Uh-huh. And, of course, there's no advertisement. You know, this is very word of mouth. Somebody had to kind of pick up that you were maybe similar to them, and then they would like, you can come here on Thursday night, whatever. Right. But it was very dangerous because entrapment was common. Oh. Uh, police officers would very often pose as gay men, go in, and Get all kinds of info on everybody there. Gotcha. And thanks to King Henry VIII's Buggery Act of 1533, having sex with another man or an animal was punishable by death. Because, you know, those two things are the exact same thing. Yeah, right. I mean, come on, people. Jesus. Come on, King Henry. King Henry. A man with with no issues in his sexual history. (laughs) We have not even... (laughs) We're going to spend a year on King Henry VIII. 
He's like, only I can buggery anyone. I'm the king. (laughs) But however, it was actually pretty rare to be charged under the buggery act. It was pretty rare that you were convicted. Yeah. Pretty uncommon for somebody to be like, let me say something foul, you know, considered to be foul. Right. It looks like I'm thinking some really gross thing to say it. Right. You know, unless you caught someone actively buggering, Uh (laughs) you would not, probably not accuse anyone of it. Because you could be like, Oh, you accuse me of buggery. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that says an awful lot about you thinking about what I get up to in bed every night. Ooh. Maybe I'll accuse you of buggery. And then he takes his glove and slaps him in the face. Oh, a buggery then... duel. A duel. <laughs> bugger off. <laughs> that's where bugger off came from. That's probably where bugger off came from. There's a false history lesson for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was incorrect. I, um, I Just to point out that the Buggery Act of 1533... Yeah. And now we're talking about the 1890s. So yeah. this is 300 years later this law endured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very long time. And I think partly that's because it was so rare that it was used. You know what I mean? Right. Like people weren't really applying it very much. Yeah. So it was just kind of there on the books. Right. But then a series of pretty public scandals changed everything. Because mm. in 1726, so uh, 170 years before Oscar Wilde's time, mm-hmm. A woman named Mother Clapp ran one of these Molly houses, and this place was bumping. It was just dozens of men there any given night, especially Sundays. I guess it was like, oh, went to church this morning, got a clean slate with God. Time to go have some fun, eh? Start the week off on a high note. (laughs) So the lurid details of what went on in this Molly house included fiddling and body songs. Fiddling, like Mm. with a fiddle. Right, not get right. your mind out of the gutter. We're talking about fiddling here, not <laughs> not diddling. Um, but men also, quote, used their hands indecently. So a little diddling, There's too. There's the diddling. <laughs> fiddling, diddling. Um, men would kiss with each other and and act like women, whatever that meant at the time. The cop was like, they would stand up and be, oh, Pfizer. Like they would say things that only girls That said. only women say, yeah. oh, Pfizer. Like, oh, dare you. <laughs> like giggling. <laughs> oh, wow. Just. You know, drag behavior. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, of course, there was lots of drinking. Obviously. There was also a room with a big double bed in it where men could go get, quote, married, as they called it. And the door was left wide open sometimes so that everyone could watch these men go in and get Mm. married. Wink, wink. One day, Mother Clap's Molly House got raided and 40 men were arrested. Apparently, Mother Clap owned this Molly house with her husband, John, and at her trial, the constable said of her, quote, she was present all the time except when she went out to fetch liquors. <laughs> the company talked all manner of gross and vile obscenity in her hearing, and she appeared to be wonderfully pleased with all of it. <laughs> Mother Clap sounds like a great time. <laughs> Although I have to say, they must not have had the word clap for... yeah an STD at that right, point because that would be a terrible Molly house. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, go to Mother Syphilis's Molly house. <laughs> the trials of these men went on for months with three of them eventually hanged and Mother Clap was put in the stocks. She was treated so roughly by the crowd that she fainted several times and had to be carried back to the jail in convulsive fits. After this, nothing more is known of her. Mm. That's which is doesn't bode well for Molly uh, Mother Clap's fate. No, but it's cool that you know we had a cool heterosexual lady hanging out with all the gay guys right, back right. in the 1700s. 
So raids and entrapment continued for years. Many men were killed either through legal means or not um, until in 1861, the death penalty for buggery was abolished and the punishment was changed to life imprisonment. Oh, thanks. And then in 1870, Thomas Bolton and Frederick Park, who were in a relationship with each other, and they often went out and about in women's clothing as Stella and Fanny. Oh, were arrested after being under surveillance for a year. And they were actually examined by the police surgeon to see if they'd had anal sex. Like, Ah. the the police surgeon made them undress and, like, poked around in their buttholes. Like, that's so gross and weird. Why would you do that? Also, not indicative. Not indicative. uh, Like, someone's had anal sex. All this writing of them being like, it was open, the rectum was a certain diameter. Like, what are you doing? So... Fortunately, that was found to be not reliable evidence of sexual crimes and also very inappropriate of the police surgeon to have done. So that was a win for British justice on that one, I feel like. And at the time, cross-dressing was not illegal. It was mostly associated with the stage. Both of these men were actors. So it was not that unusual for them to be wearing women's clothing. And they both were like, we just did it to be funny, you know, go out and see if people would believe us or whatever. Ha ha, so funny. So they just had to pay a fine, basically for disturbing the peace. And then in 1880, police were tipped off about this huge drag ball in Manchester. It had a bouncer dressed as a nun, the windows were covered, and they had a blind accordion player. This sounds like one of Stefan's. We've got a bouncer dressed as a nun. The windows are covered. There's a blind accordion player. (laughs) This is totally a Stefan bit. I'm waiting for these gay guys who are just like hanging out in somewhere in London one day and they turn and see an accordion player and go, that chap's blind. We've got to get him for our next party. He won't be able to see a thing. (laughs) The police observed nearly 50 men in that place having a gay old time, eight of them in women's clothing. The ball was shut down and everyone there had their names printed in the paper. Mm. But they were granted bail and ended up just paying a fine. But then, of course, these were all huge scandals that kicked up a lot of hullabaloo in the press. Eventually, it led to the introduction of the Labouchere Amendment in 1885. This broadened the Buggery Act to make any instance of, quote, gross indecency punishable with hard labor. Basically, because charges of sodomy were hard to prove unless the men were actively having sex when they were discovered, by expanding the definition to gross indecency, you could arrest and charge a lot more men for less. Yeah. So it really gave you that blanket power of just being like, well, I didn't like that made me uncomfortable. So you're under arrest. It's like gay panic stuff. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And it made it so like, oh, these guys walking around in women's clothing. I can charge them for that right. in a way that they weren't, I wasn't able to before. You know right, what I mean? Right. So that's just a very brief sketch on the underground gay Victorian scene and how the law stood and everything. Right. Um, and speaking of the underground gay scene, here are some commercials. Uh, Yeah, sure. We can do it with that. If our commercials are about an underground gay scene, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're doing it right. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Well, anyway, whatever they're about, here are some commercials. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. 
The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. And welcome back to the show. 
So Oscar Wilde is being introduced to the world of molly houses and male prostitutes and rent boys from 1892 onwards by his new boyfriend, Alfred Douglas, as well as a guy named Alfred Taylor, who introduced Oscar to several young working class male prostitutes over the next couple of years. These were kind of infrequent dalliances, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, But they happened often enough. He would meet these boys, offer them gifts, dine with them privately, and then take them to a hotel room. Okay. Meanwhile, he's also still with Alfred Douglas. They're arguing passionately. They're breaking up. They're getting back together several times. We all know this couple. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by all accounts, Lord Alfred Douglas sucked. (laughs) I mean, he sucked. He demanded Oscar spend a bunch of money on him to indulge his every whim. Yeah. Oscar once nursed him back to health when he was sick with the flu. But when Oscar caught the flu from Alfred, Alfred took himself to a luxurious hotel while Oscar suffered alone. Wow. And then on Oscar's 40th birthday, Alfred informed him that he didn't charged the hotel to Oscar. <laughs> Happy birthday. Happy birthday, pay my hotel bill. Unbelievable. Maybe, what a little shit. And he would also give away his old clothes to male prostitutes and carelessly leave incriminating letters between him and Oscar in the pockets. Oh my God. So of course these male prostitutes would find them and use them as blackmail. Unbelievable. So he's just vain, he's self-centered, doesn't give a shit about anybody but himself. But Oscar was smitten with Alfred He even brought him to his house to meet his sons, which apparently Constance did not like. Yeah, remember Constance, Oscar's wife (laughs) that he's married to? Yeah, remember the wife? (laughs) (laughs) Well, back in 1886, after she had their second son, apparently they just became sexually estranged. One source says that she lost interest in sex. Another said Oscar was physically repulsed by her after she gave birth twice. Who knows? I mean, I kind of hope it's not the second one because that makes him seem like a real jerk. Pretty shitty. Whatever it was, it's given as the reason that Oscar was willing to experiment sexually with Robbie Ross. Although will, even that feels like a stretch. Yeah, I'll throw in that 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 comes from Richard Elman, and uh-huh. again, that biography was written in 1987. Okay. So you know, you might be in the 80s looking for a reason why someone who seemed straight would experiment with yeah. a man, yeah. but. Today, we're kind of like, he just wanted to try it. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) I think he just wanted to try it. It's fine. Well, I wouldn't, but I haven't had sex with my wife lately, so I guess I'll give it a shot. Oh, what do you know? I liked it. Like, come on. (laughs) Come on. That's not how it works. Go on. But by 1891, Oscar was living mostly in hotels rather than at home. Richard Elman's biography says that once he warned his sons about what happened to naughty boys who made their mother cry... And his sons asked him, well, Daddy, what happens to absent papas who make mothers cry? Ooh. Hmm? Hmm? Explain, riddle me that, Daddy. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) That is so brutal. Right? (laughs) I wonder if Oscar Wilde was like, oh, God, damn. damn. Good one, you got me again. It's definitely my kid, though. Yeah. (laughs) I would have said some shit like that. smart-ass sons. (laughs) You little smart-ass, I'd slap you if I wasn't so proud. But apparently Oscar and Constance stayed on good terms, and the boys did have a happy childhood. Constance was also a writer, and she published some children's stories on her own. So, you know, with Speculation Station, I wonder if, like, she didn't like the intrusion of Lord Alfred coming into the house because she didn't like the fact that he had a boyfriend, 
Or maybe he just sucked and she just I, didn't like him. That's what <laughs> you know? I'm wondering. Yes. I was like, Constance like, okay, you brought your boyfriend, whatever. Oh, God, this kid sucks. Yes. Get him out of my fucking house. You brought the most obnoxious child <laughs> yeah. in England. <laughs> Into here. my home? Some spoiled brat. But Alfred Douglas was not only super bratty and annoying, he also had a super annoying father. Many of us don't like our (laughs) in-laws. This is the worst in-law you can think of. (laughs) His father was John Douglas, the ninth Earl of Queensbury, and this guy was a man's man. Oh, yeah, real tough. Tough. Oh, I'm a Queensbury. I know. Through and through. (laughs) Through and through. Nothing's quite as manly as a Queensbury. (laughs) Yeah, he was real big into boxing. He invented the Queensbury rules of boxing, actually, which still serve as the foundation for modern-day boxing rules today. Oh, all right, all right. And it also opened up the sport to competitors who were not born in the upper classes. Um, So that's kind of cool from our perspective, I guess. But from the perspective of his peers of the day, they did not like that shit. They're like, we're high society. We don't want to rub shoulders with (laughs) these pedestrians, you know. Yeah. Also... He had been divorced. (gasps) His first wife and Alfred's mother, Sybil Montgomery, had four kids with John. And then she was like, you know what? I've had enough. (laughs) And she she divorced him for adultery. Oh. And then he married another woman named Ethel Weems. But that marriage was annulled before their first anniversary. So I think Jeez. this guy's hard to live with Yeah, <laughs> is what I'm picking up. And that's very scandalous in this day and age to be divorced and have all these, you know, exes running around and stuff. So people were like, not fan, not a fan of him. And on top of that, he was also brutish and rude. He just seemed like a real pill to have around in the drawing room. He was also the jealous type. His title was Scottish, which meant that he didn't get an automatic seat in the House of Lords like the British titles did. However, in 1872, he was elected to the House of Lords as a representative peer. But when it came time to renew his oath of office in 1880, he refused. He was an outspoken atheist, and he thought that swearing on the Bible was, quote, Christian tomfoolery. And he said that his word as a gentleman should suffice. So they expelled him from the House of Lords, and he was never elected again. But in 1892, his son and heir, Francis Douglas, became the private secretary for the new foreign secretary, Archibald Primrose, 5th Earl of Roseborough. Archibald Primrose is such a good English name. Oh, it's, it's oh, beautiful. Perfect. Archibald Primrose, 5th Earl of Roseborough. That's so you British. ask for a more British name. Oh, I love it. It's beautiful. A few months later, Archibald arranged to have Francis created a baron which gave him a seat in the House of Lords, the one thing his father couldn't have. Mm. So that made John Douglas, Earl of Queensbury, very mad with jealousy, and they fought bitterly about it. So his son got what he couldn't have. He's he's all pissy about it. Yeah, he's being a jerk instead of being happy for him. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Being glad that from now on they had a seat in the House of Lords, whatever. And then he started hearing rumors that Francis and Archibald were having a sexual relationship. What? Or never? Disgusting. He was not into that shit at all. He hated effeminate behavior, hated dandies, hated anything soft. You know, he started harassing them both about it. Mm -hmm. He even threatened to horsewhip 
Roseberry in 1893 and had to be dissuaded by the Prince of Wales. Wow. And there is some evidence that Roseberry, although he was happily married to Hannah de Rothschild and father to several children, was possibly homosexual or bisexual. There were links to several men, including Francis, in his lifetime. So it's possible that they actually were having a physical relationship. And then in October of 1894, Francis died from a gunshot wound. Mm. And it was put out as an accidental death during a shooting trip. But the rumors were going around that it was actually a suicide. Oh, wow. And that Francis had been distraught after his affair with Rosebury ended. And Queensberry seems to have believed this. He wrote in a letter that, quote, snob queers like Rosebury had corrupted Francis and led indirectly to his death. Wow. That's uh, that's dark. And that's not uh, a very distant story. No. I feel like you hear these stories today here yeah. in America, too. Yeah. Uh, just really disapproving fathers, being really judgmental of their children, and then blaming who their children just are. Yeah. On, on them being miserable instead of being like, hey, dad, maybe you're the reason they're miserable. Maybe mm -hmm. you're the reason they don't feel like they belong in this world. Seriously. Hey, maybe you should stop doing that. Well, he don't have he did not have the capacity to oh, no. examine his actions no. in any way except for how they affected him directly. <sighs> I challenge that he did and chose not to. I think we all have the capacity mm -hmm. to stop it, to quit being assholes. <laughs> Why don't you stop it? Yeah. So maybe it's no surprise that when Queensbury heard the rumors that his third son, Alfred, was having a sexual relationship with Oscar Wilde, he immediately made it his life's work to shut that down post haste. Mm. This is a noted dandy, Oscar Wilde, with a biting wit, who was rumored to have once paraded down Piccadilly holding a single white lily. Mm -hmm. I love that that's like a, a parading, newsworthy story. Right, yeah. And they're like, a man walked down a street with a flower? My God. <laughs> Call the king. <laughs> Call in the gods. What's happening? He was everything Queensbury most detested in the world. He wrote several times to Alfred, demanding to know if the rumors were true, and threatened to cut off his allowance if he didn't stop hanging out with Oscar Wilde. Alfred simply replied, quote, what a funny little man you are <laughs> to his father, <laughs> which, of course, was like perfectly calculated just to enrage his dad even more. And he replied, calling Alfred, quote, a miserable creature and saying that when he was born, quote, I cried over you the bitterest tears a man ever shed that I had brought such a creature into the world and unwittingly committed such a crime. Yeah. yeah. He also said that he had divorced Alfred's mother, Sybil, so as not to, quote, run the risk of bringing more creatures into the world like yourself. Uh, Unbelievable. Um, and it's your, this comes from your mother's side. It's your mother's doing that you're like this. Never mind that it was actually Sybil who was the one who petitioned for divorce. Okay, I'd be so. like, hmm, I guess you're leaving <laughs> out some real important details, uh -huh. Dad. And yeah, just gross to blame someone's sexuality. First of all, it's gross to blame anyone's sexuality on anything. Period. Uh, but then to also say it's it's your mother's fault. That's what I mean. And that I if just we have don't... more kids together, she'll she'll do the same. Yeah, That's I just so don't twisted. think he has an ability to see anything right. outside of his own context. You know. So he went on to threaten his son with a scandal of epic proportions by exposing Oscar Wilde to the public. 
And this was a real threat because while all this is going on, Oscar Wilde's fame was growing and growing. Mm -hmm. Um, He debuted his Victorian drawing room comedy, Lady Windermere's Fan, in 1892. It was instantly and insanely popular. He followed that up in 1893 with another hit, A Woman of No Importance, and he was commissioned to write two more plays. He wrote An Ideal Husband in 1894, and it debuted January 1895. So the guy is trending, okay? He's the darling of the theater world. Hilarious, brilliant, subversive. And he was going out publicly with Lord Alfred Douglas. You know, they're being pretty flamboyant about their relationship. Mm -hmm. If not out and proud, at least they were not properly ashamed of themselves. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, people are like, you can be gay in private, but as soon as you start putting it in my face, yeah. now I've got to feel some type of way about it. Yeah. Again, not totally unrelatable to today's world. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Some people very, still feel that way. It seems very familiar, honestly, yeah. a lot of this. Um, <clears throat> so they're they're going out to parties together. They're just together a lot, and people note it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And Queensbury hated it so much. Mm-hmm. And in June 1894, he showed up at Oscar Wilde's house and said, quote, I do not say that you are it, but you look it and pose at it, which is just as bad. And if I catch you and my son again in any public restaurant, I will thrash you. To which Oscar replied, quote, I don't know what the Queensbury rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rule is to shoot on sight. Boom. Come at me. Come at, come at me, <laughs> the said, quickest wit in, in London. <laughs> on Valentine's Day of 1895, The Importance of Being Earnest debuted. This play, still today, the most popular of all Oscar Wilde's works, Mm -hmm. and it's considered his masterpiece. Obviously, it's most well-known as the play MJ was starring in that Peter Parker just wouldn't make time to go see in (laughs) Spider-Man 2. (laughs) True. Peter, you had plenty of time. You had every opportunity, sir. MJ has almost no character in these movies. The least you could do is go appreciate that we made her an actress. Right. <laughs> the other character she played in yes. that movie. Also, go see your friends' plays, guys. Go see it your really, friends' plays. It, it hurts your feelings when they it don't matters. go. <laughs> and they might be good, you know? You never know. So the night that Importance of Being Earnest premiered, the cream of society was present. The clotted cream of society the cream of came society. out. They were ready to be pleased with another hilarious comedy. And drama queen Queensbury mm-hmm. showed up. He decided this was time to humiliate Oscar on his own triumphant night. Mm-hmm. So he's thinking, when Oscar comes out to take a bow, I'll throw rotten vegetables at him. <laughs> Dastardly. Which, like, in a way is kind of a compliment because playwrights don't come out to take a bow unless the play is successful. Right. And the audience would start chanting, author, author. So he was like, obviously, this is going to be a good play and everyone's going to love it. And he'll come out and take a bow. And that's when I'll throw all these tomatoes at him. So, you know, it's kind of you're kind of giving him some credit there. Know, right? Thanks. You were admitting Queensbury. that the guy was a really good writer. But his scheme was totally thrown when Oscar was forewarned and Queensbury was barred from entering the theater, which mm. just makes me wonder, who who did he tell that they 
that they told on him for. Like, I know, right? how did the word get out? Unless he just like showed up carrying a crate of vegetables. <laughs> right. Somebody and was, was like, like, strangest thing, dear boy, I saw Queensbury smuggling a crate of rotten tomatoes in Pall Mall today, and I don't know why. <laughs> well, I've just, I've just been juicing. I'm just juicing a lot. Can't make it through a play without my tomato juice. Tomato <laughs> <Auto> juice. <laughs> So since he wasn't able to pelt him with some nasty tomatoes, four days later, Queensberry then took his calling card over to Oscar's club and left him a little note mm. for Oscar Wilde posing as sodomite. Now, the handwriting is really unclear. This exact wording is in dispute. It could say posing sodomite. It could say posing as sodomite. It could just say posing as a sodomite. Whatever. The main thing is that he was publicly accusing Oscar Wilde of sodomy, of being gay, which is, of course, a crime. Mm. And Alfred Douglas was immediately like, ooh, how dare he? You know what you should do? Get him arrested for libel. Let's take him to court. Let's get this all the way to the top. I want to see him in Newgate, you know. And all Oscar Wilde's friends, including Robbie Ross and, and George Bernard Shaw even, were uh-huh. all like, oh, no, 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 no. Let's not, let's not get into all that. <laughs> You're going to cause more trouble than you'll fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not like there wasn't proof that Oscar Wilde was gay (laughs) floating around (laughs) in London. But Oscar would not listen. I mean, again, he's pretty smitten with Alfred, so I think his word weighed more with him than anyone else's. Mm -hmm. And he decided to press charges. And that would be his undoing. So let's find out more about that after this commercial break. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. 
And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to the show. Oscar initiated a private prosecution of Queensbury, and Queensbury was arrested for criminal libel. Mm-hmm. Boom. Gotcha. Yeah. Done and done. And that could have led to him spending up to two years in prison. He could only avoid conviction if he could prove his claim. Mm. So if they could say, well, this isn't libel, he actually is True. sodomite, then, you know, he was free to go. Kind of why George Bernard Shaw was like, mm, yeah, let's let's not sure? do that. So Queensbury's lawyers acted quickly and they hired a bunch of private detectives to dig into Oscar's private life. And boy, oh boy, was the dirt out there. Yeah. They were like, well, no one's vacuumed in here in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Bachelor's lodgings, indeed. Mm -hmm. They found out about the blackmailing with the male prostitutes, all those letters Mm -hmm. left in pockets all those many times. They found out about the cross-dressers and the brothels. They coerced several people into agreeing to appear as witnesses, mostly because they were accomplices and they could have faced conviction themselves. Right. So this is like a little plea bargain. Mm -hmm. So every salacious detail was savored by the press, just as Queensbury had threatened. By the time the trial opened at Old Bailey in April 1895, the press and the public was in near hysteria over this case. And there was so much evidence against Oscar that he felt moved to remind them, uh, I am the prosecutor in this case. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm like, I know he's probably like, why? Oh, my gosh. Am I on trial? Right. And he acquitted himself well during questioning. He got a lot of laughs in the courtroom. Of course. Obviously. Yeah. Very witty. But Queensberry's lawyers were really good at trapping him with his own flippancy and wit. For example, Oscar was asked if he had kissed a servant boy. And he responded, oh, no, he's much too ugly. I pitied him for it, in fact. You know, and everybody's, oh, hilarious. Let's make fun of a man for something he can't help. But the lawyer was like, 
Oh, well, wires looks relevant. Are you saying you would have kissed him if he had been handsome? What's, what are you trying to say? You know, and like totally yeah. flustered Oscar on the stand. That didn't really help him out. And then in their opening argument for Queensberry's defense, they announced that they had several male prostitutes standing by to testify that they'd had sex with Oscar Wilde. Mm. And on the advice of his lawyers, Oscar dropped his libel charges. The court found that the accusation of Oscar Wilde being a sodomite was true and justified, and Queensberry was not guilty. Oscar was also held liable for all the costs Queensbury had accrued in his defense. So all of Oscar Wilde's assets were seized and sold at auction, and he was left bankrupt. Damn. But Queensbury wasn't done. You know, bell rang. He's like, round two. That bitch. He immediately sent all of his evidence to Scotland Yard. And the next day... A warrant was put out for Oscar Wilde, and he was arrested for sodomy and gross indecency. Robbie Ross, along with Oscar's butler, forced their way into his house to get all his personal effects and his manuscripts and his letters. So good on them for like you Thanks, know, looking out for your friend. Mm-hmm. Oscar was imprisoned on remand until his trial. And it must be said that Alfred visited him every day. Yeah. I, I would have expected him to be like, well, bye. Yeah. He's just a little piece of shit. But he did. He stuck by him. Yeah. I mean, you know, horrible boyfriends can care about you, too. <laughs> That's you true. Know. That's in their way. I'm sure he went in and was like, well, yes, so nice to see you. Oh, this is this is the bench you sit on, huh? Okay, well, lovely seeing you. I'll be back tomorrow. Do you have any money? I'd like to buy a scarf. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so only a couple weeks later, Oscar's trial began. And again, give a little Alfred a little credit here. Mm-hmm. He wanted to testify on Oscar's behalf. But Oscar begged him and basically all of his gay friends to get the hell out of England. Just go until this blows over. Right. Let's not get you implicated. Uh, You know, I'll take this one for the team. (laughs) But uh, you guys need to go. So Alfred, Robbie Ross and several others went to Paris while Oscar stood trial. And his first trial was for the charge of sodomy. The prosecution questioned him about a lot of his writing. They brought up picture of Dorian Gray. They brought up bunch of lines from his plays. And they even asked him to define what has become a very famous line, quote, the love that dare not speak its name. And this line is frequently misattributed as being written by Oscar Wilde. But in fact, Lord Alfred Douglas wrote that one in a poem that he published in his short-lived magazine, The Chameleon, which I think only had one issue, actually, (laughs) very short-lived. And the poem's a little bit long, but we think some of it would be nice to hear. So let's go down to Poetry Corner and hear an excerpt from Two Loves by Lord Alfred Douglas. And lo, within the garden of my dream, I saw two walking on a shining plain of golden light. The one did joyous seem, and fair and blooming, and a sweet refrain came from his lips. He sang of pretty maids and joyous love of comely girl and boy. His eyes were bright, and mid the dancing blades of golden grass his feet did trip for joy. And in his hand he held an ivory lute with strings of gold that were as maiden's hair, and sang with voice as tuneful as a flute, and round his neck three chains of roses were. But he that was his comrade walked aside. He was full sad and sweet, and his large eyes were strange with wondrous brightness, staring wide with gazing. And he sighed with many sighs that moved me, and his cheeks were wan and white like pallid lilies, 
and his lips were red like poppies, and his hands he clenched tight, and yet again unclenched, and his head was wreathed with moonflowers pale as lips of death. A purple robe he wore, or wrought in gold, with the device of a great snake, whose breath was fiery flame, which when I did behold, I fell a-weeping, and I cried, Sweet youth, tell me why, sad and sighing, thou dost rove these pleasant realms? I pray thee, speak me sooth. What is thy name? He said, My name is Love. Then straight the first did turn himself to me, and cried, He lieth, for his name is Shame. But I am Love, and I was wont to be alone in this fair garden till he came, unasked by night. I am true love, I fill the hearts of boy and girl with mutual flame. Then sighing said the other, Have thy will, I am the love that dare not speak its name. Oof. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's kind of odd that they asked him to define a line that he didn't write. Right. Or, and that wasn't written to him in a letter or something right, like right. that. But they did. They asked him, what is the love that dare not speak its name? Right, right. And Oscar spoke very eloquently about the love between, you know, an older man and a younger man. You know, right, like a mentor-mentee yeah. thing. You know, <laughs> one's got experience and wisdom. The other's full of energy and ideas and glamour and life, you there's, know. There's, and, lots, uh, there's lots of different kind of love in the world. Yeah. The love between a man and a woman or, or, or a man and his teacher or like the love of a man and his sandwich. <laughs> These are all, they're all love by any other name. They're all love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, of course, people would probably kind of like, well, then, but why would you dare to not speak its name? You know, it's a Look, I have love. loved some that sandwiches that... that I'm embarrassed to talk about. <laughs> so. Well, if only you were Oscar Wilde's lawyer. <laughs> uh, because... I'd like to introduce you to the peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich. <gasps> Gross. Well, I would never say it out loud. But yeah, this answer mostly just made people in the courtroom go, hmm, I think, you know, I think this guy might be gay. <laughs> like it really, oh, it did not work very well. Um, well, did you hear? He understands poetry so well. <laughs> Ooh, I think he might be gay. So yeah, kind of that answer kind of worked against him a little bit in this trial. Hmm. But even so, the trial ended with the jury unable to reach a verdict, probably because the charge, again, was sodomy. And that's when you kind of have to find him actively engaged. Right. And they didn't have anything like that. Right. So, right. you know, uh, th that was probably why. And Alfred, again, must be said, give him some credit. He arranged for his cousin, who was a sympathetic reverend, to pay Oscar's bail. And then Oscar went into hiding at Ernest and Ava Leverson's house. They were firm friends of his that stayed friends till the end. So mm. he was able to go kind of hide away from society in their home. And then at that point, the Solicitor General, Frank Lockwood, was approached by none other than the lawyer who had defended Queensberry in the libel case. Oh. Who asked him, quote, can we not let up on the fellow now? But Lockwood said the case was too politicized to be dropped. Wow. So I think that really says something about society at this time. Like, even yeah. though it was illegal, I feel like most people were like, yeah, but it's kind of their own business. And I don't know why we're airing all this dirty laundry. It's uh -huh. embarrassing to everyone. Like, we don't want to go our limit, you know, right. on this sort of right. thing. So Oscar's final trial began in May for the charge of gross indecency. Both he and his friend Alfred Taylor, who had refused to turn witness against Oscar and was subsequently charged with gross indecency himself, they were found guilty and sentenced to two years hard labor, which was the maximum sentence allowed. Mm -hmm. Really throwing the book at him here. 
Oscar's life and his reputation were both destroyed. The judge said that the sentence was, quote, hardly adequate and that this was, quote, the worst case I have ever tried. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bear in mind here, Oscar Wilde certainly was frequenting male prostitutes who were underage teenage boys, right? Even today, that's not cool. Right. So We don't want to skate over that. Right. It's not like he was totally just an innocent person doing wonderful things right. in his own volition. He still had some shady behavior. Yeah, and there's some argument that these teenage boys were consensually willing. They were fully, you know, knew what was going on yeah. or whatever. On the other hand, some of them, most of them, I, sh- I would say, were uneducated, right. really poor, easy to exploit in yeah. any way you might want. So right. anyway, just saying, in modern times, we might still be really censuring Oscar Wilde. Right, right. Even though we feel differently about being gay. Yes. Yeah, not for his gayness. No. But rather for, for taking advantage of young people. Exactly. Yeah. But there might have been even more afoot here. It's been suggested that Queensbury went to his old foe, Rosebury, remember him? Archibald. Who was prime minister at this point when all this is going on. And he may have told Rosebury that he had some kind of evidence about Rosebury's affair with Francis. Mm. And that if he didn't make sure Oscar Wilde was prosecuted to the full extent of the law, Queensbury would expose Rosebury to the world. Really the battle of the berries here. Yeah, totally. Berry berry versus berry. Some real berry on berry action, <laughs> which is exactly what England was trying to get away from. not like. <laughs> berries should never touch other berries. <laughs> and it is true that Rosebery's Liberal Party sustained a minor defeat in 1895, a bare month after Oscar Wilde was convicted. And even though this defeat didn't really warrant the action, Rosebery used it as an excuse to resign from the premiership. Mm. It's a little bit shady considering the suggestion that Queensbury right. was like, I can expose you to the world just like I'm doing to Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Of course, everything bad that could happen to Oscar Wilde was happening in front of Rosebery's eyes. So he right. was like probably seeing his whole life crumble to nothing. Yeah. Rosebery himself wrote, quote, I cannot forget 1895. To lie awake night after night, wide awake, hopeless of sleep, tormented of nerves, and to realize all that was going on, at which I was present, so to speak, like a disembodied spirit, to watch one's own corpse, as it were, day after day, is an experience which no sane man would repeat. Wow. I mean, what a dick Queensberry was. He's literally tormenting these guys. Like, this is torture. Yeah. It must be said, Queensberry never produced any evidence of an affair. Right, right. But... It was enough yeah. to be worried that there was some. Yeah. And, you know, this is all speculation station. It's not been proven that, right. that he put pressure on the prime minister or anything like that. But it is a little bit of suspicious timing. Yeah. So Oscar Wilde was imprisoned and the hard labor was walking on a penal treadmill, which was this treadmill that was used to mill corn or pump water. And he had to break oakum, which was separating the fibers of old Navy ropes so that sounds awful. Ugh, I mean, just, just tedious, hard. Yeah, difficult. Nothing aesthetic about it. <laughs> he was transferred to different jails several times. And at first he was not allowed anything but a Bible to read and no pen or paper. But eventually he was allowed to write and he wrote a 50,000 word letter to Alfred Douglas called De Profundis. 
This was a cold, hard look on his whole career and his life to date. And he finally repudiates Alfred for his vanity and arrogance. Yay! Uh But he forgives him and he takes responsibility for his own actions. It's not clear if Alfred ever read this letter. Robbie Ross was instructed to give a copy to him, but Alfred claimed he only got choice quotations (laughs) and not the whole letter. So... You know, speculation station, maybe Robbie only gave him the mean stuff (laughs) and was like, I'm taking out anything nice he said about you. I know, right? I'm going to give you the dirt. I feel like if I were Robbie, that's probably what I would have done. Like he would have read it and been like, oh, he's finally saying you're arrogant, you're vain, you're selfish. Oh, I forgive you. Let's just leave that part out. He needs to read this first part. (laughs) Maybe so. But life in prison was super hard, obviously, sort of the point. And Oscar Wilde had a really, really difficult time of it. At one point, he collapsed from illness and hunger. And that fall ruptured his right eardrum. Um, But he was finally released in May 1897. And he sailed immediately to France and never returned to the UK again. Can't blame him. Uh, Can't blame him on that one. I would also go to France. (laughs) And during his imprisonment, Constance had changed her and the boys' last names to Holland um, just because, you know, it's a big scandal going on with Oscar Wilde. Uh-huh. She didn't want to be asked all the time about her husband yep. and stuff. So she just changed their names. She sent the boys off to a boarding school in Switzerland. And she never divorced Oscar, but she did force him to give up his parental rights. He never saw his sons again. However, he was broke as hell and super unhealthy from his prison term. So she did send him three pounds a week. And that sounds stingy, but that's something like 415 pounds a week today. So it wasn't nothing, you know, it was enough to keep himself, you know, fed and shod, (laughs) I guess you could say. And Oscar himself selected a pen name, Sebastian Melmoth, and he wrote long essays advocating for prison reform. And while he was staying with Robbie Ross, he wrote The Ballad of Reading Jail. Mm. It described the brutal prison conditions that all convicts share regardless of their charge. So he didn't Uh spend a lot of time being like, should we be in jail or not? He was just like, the main thing is that when you're in jail... It's fucked up. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what you did. Yeah. It's all the same punishment and yeah. everybody suffers whether and you, you can die. Whether you murdered a man or you just loved a man. Exactly. You know, same punishment. Yeah, on the treadmill. Jeez. The Ballad of Reading Jail was a commercial success. It brought him a little bit of money. And most people knew that it was him who had written it, even though he had, you know, published it under his pen name, Sebastian Melmoth. It didn't have his true name on it until a couple years later. But I think it's cool that he managed to make prison reform cool (laughs) commercially. It's pretty dope. But then he reunited with Alfred Douglas in Rouen in 1897. And they moved in together outside of Naples, even though neither of their friends or families approved. Obviously not. But it didn't last long. Their personal differences were a part of it. Oscar said that Alfred had no money or ideas and still wanted him to take care of everything. Meanwhile, Constance, as well as Alfred's family, were threatening to cut them off financially if they didn't separate. So they did. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Constance died in 1898, and Oscar ended up poor as shit in Paris. And he was drinking. He got really depressed. He spent so much of his time in his hotel room that he joked once, quote, My wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One of us has got to go. (laughs) Probably the only bright spot in his life was in January of 1900 when Queensbury died. (laughs) But, you know, speculation station as to whether or not that cheered him up at all. (laughs) 
Yeah, he, he might have thought of this line from his play, The Duchess of Padua. Some cause happiness wherever they go. Some whenever they go. <laughs> he had embarrassing encounters with people he knew from before the conviction or who recognized him, and that further depressed him. Yeah. His health, so badly affected by his prison term, just kept getting worse and worse. But he wasn't alone. In October of 1900, he sent for Robbie Ross to come visit him because he knew the end was near. He wanted his dear friends with him. And he also had another firm friend with him named Reginald Turner. And Reginald was also a writer. He published 12 novels in his lifetime, but none of them really made much of an impression. Um, he joked that it wasn't his first editions that were hard to find, but his second. <laughs> <laughs> And Oscar, who was really depressed one day, told Reginald that he'd had a nightmare. Quote, I dreamt that I died and was supping with the dead. And Reginald replied, quote, I am sure that you must have been the life and soul of the party. (laughs) And Robbie arranged for a bedside conversion to Catholicism for Oscar, which he had wanted for a really long time. And both Reginald and Robbie were by his bedside when Oscar died on November 30th, 1900. Hey, that's my birthday. Yay, (laughs) happy birthday. (laughs) Man, and he was born in 1854, so what, 46 years old? Yeah. Robbie and Alfred apparently had a physical altercation at Oscar's graveside, and from then on, they were in a feud that lasted for years. Robbie was Oscar's literary executor, which meant he had to track down and purchase the rights to all of Oscar's writings, which were sold off when he was bankrupted. He gave Oscar's sons the rights to everything, basically making sure that there was an estate and an inheritance for them. He also published the definitive collection of Oscar Wilde's works in 1908 in 14 volumes. That's a lot of writing. He even commissioned an artist to make the sculpture that stands on Oscar's tombstone and designed a compartment for Robbie's own ashes within it. They are both together in Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. Yeah. I think we visited. I remember seeing Oscar Wilde, yeah. I'm kind of sorry we didn't know about Robbie Ross when we were there. Yeah, Robbie was super cool. I would have looked, looked for that, that compartment. Guess we'll have to go back to Paris. Oh, no. At some point. So, yeah, Robbie is spending all this time preserving Oscar Wilde's legacy, taking care of his family, yeah. trying to ensure that maybe his name would be cleared at some point and he right. would get his reputation back because right. he was such a good writer and he was such a good friend. Alfred, on the other hand, Mm. married a bisexual poet named Olive Custance and completely renounced Oscar Wilde. Oh, jeez. He even called him, quote, the greatest force for evil that has appeared in Europe during the last 350 years. Oh, my God. Which kind of begs the question, what happened 350 years before that was so evil? It's an oddly specific (laughs) number. Very specific. (laughs) Lord Alfred was like, 350 years ago. Paisley was invented, (laughs) and then Oscar Wilde. (laughs) What an asshole. This guy paid all your bills for a long-ass time. Okay, and then he's like... bought you scarves, dealt with your dad, your asshole dad. You're the whole reason his entire life got torpedoed. Your advice, your dad, your shit. But he did bring himself somehow to write several books about his life with Oscar Wilde. Surely not for just money and fame. Oh, no, yes. Obviously. Wow. Um, He also converted to Catholicism and totally renounced homosexuality and started calling it a gross sin and disgusting and said that Oscar Wilde had, like, led him astray and all this shit. Oh, my God. 
In true Queensberry fashion, he ruthlessly went after Robbie Ross and tried to have him charged and convicted for homosexual acts several times. Are you kidding me? He also launched a very anti-Semitic paper called Plain English. Oh, my God. Well, you know. (laughs) Alfred just sucks. Hang on. Let me find. Let's see. I've got this chart here. It's all the worst characteristics a human being could have. Let's see. Check, check, check. Oh, I don't have this one yet. Better become an anti-Semite. Good. Bingo. (laughs) Bingo. I've done them all. Oh, man. Um, But fortunately, he was such a dick that whatever he wrote in plain English often resulted in libel suits against him. Good. One was from our friend Winston Churchill. (laughs) Go get him, bulldog. Get him, bulldog. I know. I was like, why would you go for a Winston Churchill? Come on. Um, He accused Winston Churchill in print of falsifying a battle report from 1916 in order to manipulate the stock market somehow. Well, he lost that one because there was zero evidence Uh of of that. And he spent six months in jail. (laughs) And, you know, again, we got to give Alfred his credit where credit is due. It must be said he did reject the brutal policies of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. So even though he was very anti-Semitic, he was like, you know, it's not very Christ-like to be going around genociding people. So Look, maybe this is too far. Okay, we could credit where it's due, but that bar is low. Low, very low. I guess not as low as it used to be, but still, <laughs> like, down with Nazis. Oh, good. Well, you've got that going for you. Right, okay. Right. Something, but it's not very much. <laughs> Should kind of go without saying. Right. Um, But it kind of gave me the impression that he was a little bit like, oh, shit. Like he had spent a decade talking shit about Jewish people and then realized how Uh those sentiments were being applied. And him and probably a lot of other anti-Semites that were like, oh, that's too far for me. Well, he didn't like to pay the bill when it came due. Very true. That's Alfred's thing. He'll he'll talk a lot of shit. But when there's consequences, he runs away. So true. He was like, I'd love to send this to Oscar, but oh, he's dead. He also softened up on Oscar after his own prison term, saying, quote, Sometimes a sin is also a crime, but such is not the case with homosexuality. Okay. I still thought it was a sin, but decided you shouldn't get go to jail for it. Uh, I guess, again, <laughs> the bar's low for Alfred. Uh-huh. And sadly, he only had one son with Olive, and this son suffered from schizoaffective disorder, and he spent most of his time in an asylum. Oh. So that is sad for Alfred. I feel bad for him on that one. But it's important to remember that Oscar Wilde seemed to have no regrets. No regrets. No regrets. He wrote in De Profundis, quote, When first I was put into prison, some people advised me to try and forget who I was. It was ruinous advice. It is only by realizing what I am that I have found comfort of any kind. Now I am advised by others to try on my release to forget that I have ever been in a prison at all. I know that would be equally fatal. It would mean that I would always be haunted by an intolerable sense of disgrace and that those things that are meant for me as much as for anybody else, the beauty of the sun and moon, the pageant of the seasons, the music of daybreak and the silence of great nights— the rain falling through the leaves, or the dew creeping over the grass and making it silver, would all be tainted for me and lose their healing power and their power of communicating joy. To regret one's own experiences is to arrest one's own development. To deny one's own experiences is to put a lie into the lips of one's own life. It is no less than a denial of the soul. Profound. 
de profundis. Yes, indeed. I really love that so much. Um, and, you know, we were talking in our last episode about what we want to bring, what energy we want to bring into 2022. Yeah. And I would like to bring some of this en- energy as well yeah. to say, you know, it, what's the point of looking back with regret? Right. Everything that's happened to you, everything you've done has made you who you are. Yeah. And maybe you want to change some of those characteristics. Maybe you want to work on yourself. But you wouldn't be who you are, yeah. you know, without your choices and without your just life that yeah. happened, you yeah. know. So what's the point of looking back and saying, let's forget all about that or I regret that or anything? Yeah. We are the summary of our experiences, mm-hmm. you know. There's no way around that. Yeah. And I, I kind of like just to put it in the context of like dealing with trauma because like, you know, his family's like, that's traumatic for you to live in a prison. Let's just forget it. Pretend yeah. it never happened. Yeah. And he's pointing out that's that's not going to help me. In fact, to shut off part of my brain or to block out something horrible also taints all the beautiful things that you can be thinking and feeling uh-huh. and seeing and sensing. So I think that's really cool. I don't know. You might appreciate something more because of the negative experience you previously had. Yeah. So if you ignore that previous experience, now you've got nothing to compare the positive to. Yeah. You know? It's sort of like Inside Out, the Pixar movie. Go that's on. incredibly profound. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, the whole thing was core memories or joyful or disgust or fear right. or whatever. And then as she got older, they started to kind of meld. Right. And they, an experience was both joyful and sad. Uh-huh. And without the sadness, the joy wasn't the same. Right. And without the joy, the sadness wasn't the same. You couldn't really have one without the other. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a powerful message of that movie to be like, don't shut out any one emotion. You have you need them all. I, I always think of it like and this isn't profound, but I always think of like, you know, a blank white canvas. Mm-hmm. You're like, if it's all white, then you, there's no picture there. Yeah. But if you put some black in there, you've got shading and shadows and definition. Now now you're painting a picture. You've mm-hmm. got to have that contrast. You know, not that we shall go seeking out negative experiences. <laughs> and I wish everyone's were all positive all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do, uh, they do. They do give us something in yeah. our life as we move forward. Well, and I think that's what he was saying, too, is he's like, you know, I didn't go seeking negative experiences. Right. I went and sought joyful experiences. Yeah. The consequences were negative uh-huh. and not joyful. But would I have given up the joyful part right. to give now give up this part? Yeah. I don't think I would. Yeah. Honestly, looking back, I'm I'm happy with what I did. And it sucks that it ended up this way, but yeah. that's how it is. So so what can we do moving forward? We can look at are we giving people negative consequences for right. their joyful experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something we can change. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely something that we can shift to a better place where we realize that, yes, there's consequences for mm-hmm. doing bad things, but how are we defining bad things? I mean, back then they were literally like, like, like we said, you killed a man or you loved a man. Same horrible consequences. Right. Outrageous. Insane. That's outrageous. Insane. You always need to keep history in mind when you're evaluating your present circumstances and saying, well, this seems like a really bad thing to me. And you go back in time and you're like, well, that seemed objectively like the worst thing in the world to them at the time. They they believed that. And that that's where I think we can kind of analyze history and say, well, maybe we look at ourselves and say, this seemed like a bad thing, but maybe 100 years from now, I'm going to look like an idiot. Right. Can we get ahead of it and mm-hmm. just say, wait, I look like an idiot today. Yeah. So we don't have to, people don't have to wait 100 years for us to come around. <laughs> True. 
Although I will I will say, you know, because he was put on trial and yeah. it was this horrible fallout from yeah. that, it changed a lot of people's sure. opinions. Sure. And I think while it was even happening, I mean, I'm speculation station. I'm imagining right. a lot of people in society were like, man, it's really too bad that Oscar Wilde's in trouble because I fucking hate Queensberry. <laughs> right, I'd yeah. much rather hang out with Oscar Wilde than <laughs> yeah. this asshole. Yeah, if the law is favoring Queensberry's side. Over Wilde? Maybe there's something wrong with the law. I know. And, there, you know, probably while it was all in the papers, too, there was plenty of people being like, but he's like a really good playwright and yeah. he don't hurt nobody and yeah. he's so funny and I like having him around. Right. On the other hand, and you got this fucking dude nobody likes who's jerk, who's divorced and running around yeah. with all these ladies and just being scandalous on his own. Right. Trying to force a quarrel on this guy. Like yeah. he's really he's that's the whole his whole actions was just to make Oscar Wilde mad enough to do what he did, which yeah. was take him to court and make it a whole public thing. Yeah. Because as long as it wasn't public, nobody really cared, you know. But anyway, so I think of people, plenty of people probably were looking at Queensberry like, you're in the wrong here. You're the one who was poking this bear and nobody asked for that and nobody wanted it. Mm -hmm. But now we all have to deal with this bear. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's true. So, yeah, I, I like that. Uh, the, taking that forward into the new year. Yeah. Kind of looking back at our own experiences and trying to appreciate where we are and right. why we're here. And then also examining what we're judging other people for, yeah. right? And saying, yeah. well, maybe is that really a what bad really thing? What really matters, yeah. Or is, it, is that fine? Mm-hmm. Is, is it not affecting me or anyone else? Who's this harmed? isn't the downfall of society. Right. Because, I mean, look, back then they thought if men were sleeping together, mm-hmm. humanity will be doomed in yeah. a matter of decades. Right. And guess what? That's a few hundred years ago, folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's kind of okay. I Turns mean, out we're all right, and a lot of people are a lot happier because of the progress we've made. And so maybe if they'd realized that back then, we'd be in an even better, better place, place now. Better place now, yes. Yeah. And think about it. If I can put a buggery act together in 1533. Oh, my God. Then you get to the 1800s, and there's a thriving underground of gay bars and gay, right. you know, gay meeting places yeah. and stuff. It's It don't matter if you make it illegal. Right. People will do what they want to do. Right. It's you know, to a purpose, you know, to a point, I don't want to be like, well, go out and murder somebody yeah. <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> no laws. No you know. laws. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just right. But um, but I think for some of these things that are so personal, who you're having sex with, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. What, why is it anyone else's business? Well, and the, I think the issue is that in making it illegal and you force these like underground networks to form right. for people to just experience the best life they can mm-hmm. now have to do it very dangerously yes instead of just normally and safely mm-hmm. like anyone else could and i think that's the big thing too is like when you when you make something that is so necessary to living a healthy productive life illegal yeah then people are going to find a way to live yeah and they may have to do that in a very dangerous way and that's not right yeah to make it illegal really influences Everyone else, because, you know, if you talk about these guys that got arrested in the Manchester, right, right, for this drag ball, that smacks of underground, illicit, right, shady doings. You know what I mean? When actually it was just a party. Yeah. And, and there are parties like that all over the city. And uh-huh. if it had been any other party, it would have been like nothing to talk about. And if you never heard about it, you wouldn't know about you it. Wouldn't and it wouldn't care. hurt anybody. Yeah. And if it had been talked about, it would have been, oh, it was a party. They had an accordion player. Uh-huh. They had a nun yeah. at the party. <laughs> they had a bouncer just like, oh, it's all these people were there. It's great. Yeah. But like, because it was illegal, they made it seem like 
this horrible ring of criminals. You know uh-huh. what I mean? And that that does, as a reader, you're going to be reading that going, ooh, I guess they're a bunch of criminals. But actually, it's just a bunch of men hanging out, just having a good time. So that's our stance here on Ridiculous Romance. Legalize gayness. <laughs> that's what we're, we're sick of it. <laughs> no, I'm so glad that so much progress has been made. So mm-hmm. much more to make Me too. Uh, across the LGBT spectrum, um, for sure, because it's still a big problem um, for a lot of people. But just open your damn hearts, right. people. In 2022, be a wild, not a Queensberry. Yes, please. Please. We got enough Queensberries. And please let us know what you thought of the episode, the Oscar Wilde story. There's so much more to Oscar Wilde's life that we just couldn't even touch on because the man lived densely, right? Yes, densely. Um, And he's so funny. I mean, I know we said he was funny a lot and hopefully got to share some of his his witticisms for you. But definitely check out his plays. They're delightful. His Picture of Dorian Gray is a very, very good novel. Um, yeah, he's just yeah. a, he was just a really cool dude. I wish he had lived longer to write yeah. even more. Yeah. But, oh, well, at least he did make his impact and he changed a lot about the trajectory of the country that he lived in. So yeah. that's very cool. Yeah. Good for you, Oscar Wilde. So let us know what you thought. You can reach us at romance at iheartmedia.com. Yep. Or we're on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Dianamite Boom. And I'm at, oh, great. It's Eli. And the show is at Medic Romance. Don't forget to drop a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Uh, you can now rate in the app on Spotify as well. If you're on Spotify, just throw us a five star. We'd love that. That interesting, too, yep. if they added that. And, uh, and yeah, we can't wait to hear from you. We can't wait to see you next week with another exciting episode. Yeah! So long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.